Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, making sure you're back for another episode. What's going on, Victor? How are, have you been in this crazy-ass week? Oh, it has been crazy. I went to a bear pool party over the weekend because it was a four-day weekend. Oh, all right. And I went um, because I was invited, so I went. There's a lot of folks in the pool. And I had a weird revelation. So part of me was like, okay, there's nobody here. There's nobody here that I would give a sample or a taste. And I was like, wow. And then part of me was like, I'm not really, I was going through this weird epiphany that I'm not really into bears. And I thought really? I was. but I was, Well, I am, but not, let me just say this. Not not all of them. Like they have to be like kind of. There's a, some of them. There's there there's some who you know if you got that football player build or that coach build, yes, That's that rugby type, yes. But if you got that sloppy Trump voter look, no. And so that was hitting me. But then what was funny though was somebody that I used to talk to um, was in the pool with some. Some boy who's all fanning over him, and then they saw me walk in, and damn near broke his neck to get up, try to talk to me. I was like, uh uh-uh. uh. I said, You need to go on back to your little friend in the pool. He's getting cold. He's like, Why is he looking you? You're looking good and everything. I was like, I know. Um, and uh, I said, I know I'm looking good. I said, You know why? He said something. I was like, He said, um, You think you're all cocky now? I said, I am cocky. I said, Look, it's because you jumped out of the pool. Left your little boy out there to come say something to me. But yeah, I, I All right, tell ready. him I'm, I'm conceited. I got a reason. Yeah, I got a reason because I've come in here and I already command the room. So I was like, that's how it is. And then what was also funny was somebody that I also used to talk to was there. And basically, <laughs> um, he and some other people were like, oh, okay, so some real competition come into the room. And then my, my friend, Jason. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just say Jay. Jay was like, uh, he was like, I'm back off, foxes. I'm the one I've been with them. I was like, well, that's true. Look at you. And then they were asking questions and stuff and telling business, which I didn't care because it was all good stuff. And he was like, and I was just say, you know, I'm going to be honest, y'all. I know, I know my skill set and trust. If I wanted to, I can slay this room. But we're not really into that. So I was just basically sitting there being very, being thirsty on the throne because I realized that I could literally walk home with any, about at least six of those folks that day. But I refused to because I wanted to let everybody know that <laughs> I'm just not as easy as everybody else up in here. And y'all need to recognize that. You need to just look, glorify, and just want. And that's how I left it. And that's how I think you should always leave things like that. Like, don't let everybody have a sample or a taste. Let them think about it. Let them savor. Let them, you know, pretend or fantasize. Never let them have everything right away. So that's that's how I like to leave things. And my little ego was boosted. Um, trashly. But trashily. Whatever word would be. But it was boosted. Especially after what you... I'll say his name. Another David. You know, jump out of the pool left the boy he was all hugged up within the pool trying to come and holler at me i was like no you didn't come and left that boy in the water that boy looking at me like i stole everything from his family 
But yeah, so that was it was just a good weekend for you. It was my little. I, I I told David about it. He was like, "I guess I need to hurry up and get back to Los Angeles." And I was like, "I'm just saying that you just yeah, you probably need to hurry up and get back to Los Angeles." Right. Um, that was fun though. But yeah, it made me think about what is it I like about bears, and I don't want to. I don't want to discriminate. I just feel like at this point, you know, I, I've I've been to CrossFit, you know, shaped up a little things and. You know, and then I look at, you know, kind of the men that I've been getting the last few years, and it's just changed, you know. And I just feel like that, you know, I if you can be picky, be picky. Don't be ashamed of being picky. You ain't got to take something because they want you. You take, you be picky, and you, and you do that because you have to let people know that you just don't run around with any old scrap of meat. You just got to have some taste and standards. So yeah, I was trying to make sure that I un- that I was reanimating the whole game by telling these hoes how to make sure you could be choosy. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had the game unlocked. I had to get the girls together. I tried. It was too hot to be too much, but it was bad. <laughs> but the party was fun, though. I recommend that if you go to a pool party, go. Do be aware that stuff happens at pool parties. That's the point of it. You go to a gay pool party. You have to yeah, put that yeah. adjective were, in there. And I'm going to be honest. I did go take a peek because I am a nosy host. So I went to go take a peek. And I, I was disappointed because I'm like, y'all just let, y'all just be, let any old, I can say anybody though. I was like, anybody? Anybody? Okay. Because I was looking like, no, and it was funny because I was like, no, 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 no. There was like nobody in that little group. I was like, "No, y'all touching me." What? Were they doing uh, group things? Yes, they were doing grown folks group things. Oh Lord, you went to a play party? They no, they do this at every pool party here. So, and me, I like to be nosy. I don't like to. I don't like to participate because, again, I don't want everybody to have a taste or sample. I want them to think about it and savor on it. But I was sitting there like looking like, mm. and you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes some folks don't look sexy in sex. So I'm just saying, sometimes it, I think I told a story about when I saw something before and somebody hollered out their knees and I was like, you know, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> The arthritis got the hold of them. (laughs) Oh, my knees. I'm like, well, that just kills the whole thing. (laughs) There was just people there. Because sometimes I think, oh, man. And you just do stuff. I was like, I can't get caught up and just do stuff because this is my reputation out here in the street. And also, this is public. And also, this is my reputation. So I'm trying to make sure that. My reputation don't get chalked up out there. Because you never know. It could be a jealous hoe out there. Be like, bitch, I saw you. We got a picture of you out here participating. Like, no, I'm not being that person. But me and Jay, and he started laughing at folks. I was like, I can't be back here with you because we're going to get in trouble. Because they already maxed me not participating. But anyway, that's another story for another time. But it was a, it was a fun time. <laughs> it was a fun time. Oh, right. Um... Well, my weekend wasn't like that in the least bit. 
people that suck. I, I was I was still recovering from being sick. Yeah, I can tell. But I'm better. Um, I took off. What was it? Friday. I was like, look, I'm not gonna be here. So y'all do whatever. I know. I was like, when people came to work on Friday. I was like, I'm not. I'm not coming in on a Friday. Give me all these four days. Right. I'm like, I have stuff to do, which is sleep. <laughs> I have a problem. Right. <laughs> but I didn't do anything but sit my happy ass on the couch and play video games. So nothing, really. <laughs> Besides the pool party, I went, I, yeah, I, I did some cleaning and watched some TV and just relaxed. Well, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> we got a lot today for y'all. Um, our special guest is going to be really fun for y'all, so can't wait for y'all to hear that. Um, before we get all into that, let's just go ahead and get us some tea. And it wasn't a lot of tea, per se, but it's enough. So let's go ahead and get into it. Let's go ahead and talk about it, because this has been bothering me. So they have cast Robin Nightwing for the show Titans. If you don't know, that's Dick Grayson. Now, everybody knows that Dick Grayson it used to be the young Robin, the, the original Robin, Batman. Then he became Nightwing. Um, but we also know of him for other things. Like, he has a very perfect body. And he has, noticeably, a very perfect butt. But the person that they cast, they picked an actor named Brandon Thrace, or I can't really say his last name. Brendan Brenton. But if you have seen Gods of Egypt, <laughs> he was in that. He was in another version of the Blue Lagoon. Um, he was in. Let's see, what else was he in? Um, The Giver, and he was in Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Tale, Dead Men Tell No Tales. This past year, this past summer. Uh, but now he's our new Robin, and I looked at him, and I was like, I don't see Robin nowhere in this child's face. Have you seen this boy? I saw him, and I was like, next. Get her <laughs> out of here. Get, get her out. It was like... <sighs> I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm trying to figure out what happened. Because, like, okay, they went... And I'm not sure if he's completely white, because somebody said he's not. But um, I was looking at him, and I was like, okay, I'm trying to find it. I'm really trying to find a Robin or a Nightwing. I just don't really see it. He's 28, but I really don't see anything in him. And I think the person that I, if they was going to choose a white character to play him, I was thinking of a little boy from... um. Um, Vampire Diaries, um, Stephen R. McQueen. Because I feel like he, he even said he wanted it. He worked out for it. He looks good. Looks really good. Um, but now they picked this child, and I'm like, I don't, I just don't see it. And maybe I don't they may, see it at all. And he ain't got no booty either. Because they, we, you know, you know how we are. We went online, Google, we were posting pictures all over Twitter, and he ain't got unless he some squats. As I said, let Jesus be a set of squats because he needs... He gonna need more than squats. He gonna have to have, like, the Kim Kardashian playing or something. He's to booty because he's gonna have to have something. Cause this, or at least some inserts. 
you know, yeah. And somebody was like, saying something like, well, he's more than his butt. I was like, but that's what we like about, that's what things like about Nightwing. So, okay. But, you know, we'll see. He may surprise us. You know, you never know. He may surprise us. He could be. <laughs> he could be, but I'm not holding, I'm not holding any, I'm not holding hope out for this month. He's from, uh, I think he's from Queensland. Mm. And? I mean, he's cute, but he ain't like, again, when I think of Robin, I think of somebody else. I just did not see this person. I just did not see this person. Mm. But good luck on that. Good luck on that. And it's not movie. But we'll, we'll, we'll keep y'all posted. We'll see what happens. We'll see costumes and stuff. So they just did a good job getting that girl to be, and I forgot her name, but she has a pretty name, to be a Starfire. Starfire, yeah. yeah. She, she's gorgeous. She is. I was like, y'all, and I was already feeling it, so I was like, okay, y'all, y'all doing good, you got this character, you got her, I was like, so therefore, I'm expecting you know, the best, you know, especially after that. Right. But, no. <laughs> mm. It's an adult the, the law, sometimes I'm saying it wrong, so, and I am so sorry, but again, you're beautiful, and I'm excited for this piece. Not really a fan of the person I picked for, for a raven, because she's so young, and I don't think a raven is ugh, young, and I don't know, it's like two steps forward, three steps back, but we'll see right. how Right, it's like, ugh. do y'all want to win? Is that it? Y'all, I don't think they want to win. I don't really don't think they want to win. But again, like we don't we don't know the Willens and Dylans that happen inside, but I just feel like they could have thought of this a little bit. They could have done a little bit better. But who am I? Who am I? <laughs> Let's see. Oh, and then your favorite um your favorite group, the the, the inhumans. I know you're about to say some lie and I <laughs> <laughs> see we knew it was gonna be bad. Yes. And it was bad. <laughs> it was beyond bad. So <laughs> I don't know if it it was already released in the IMAX, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reviews came in and <sighs> looking a little tight for uh this Imperial family. Um, it grossed only two point six million and. 700 IMAX theaters. And it was pretty... The reviews were like, eh, it's here. And that's about it. That's how people put it out. So it was like, oh, it's here. And they did do their best. They even tried to rework Medusa's hair. Did you see that? They tried to... I saw that. It still looked shit, like shit. Yeah, it still looked like some bad yaka. And so I was like, I just felt like they should have just not done it this way. This should have been just on like 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 ABC. It should have been like just on TV. Um, no. Well, when you have Scott Buck, the showrunner of Iron Fist, that you know was about to be some trash. So I'm like, what do y'all expect? I was trying to get because I was like, okay, maybe y'all have a story up there. Y'all got some good people playing it. I'm still not the person I picked for Medusa. It's hard for me to, to watch her because she's also in the show Ballers, and she plays kind of a 
a, a girl that the rock sleeps with, so I'll appreciate that. Anybody sleeps with the rock and not me, I'm not happy about. But um, the fact that she she's in that, so it's hard for me to like look at her as Medusa because Medusa is a very loyal character, a very very powerful character. And, I, and what I got from the clips, and also from friends who did see it, they said that you just did not get that from her or this actress. They did like Crystal, and I've always liked Crystal. So they said Crystal was a good character. So I'm gonna go and see it so I can go see Crystal. Ah, uh, no, I'm not gonna see it. <laughs> I don't have the money or the time. I don't have the time. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I just like uh, why? Why would I do that to myself? Why would I put myself to be set up for that kind of disappointment when I knew? the trailers that drop were shit and it, it just looks like it's oh it just looked bad and then i heard like the writing the dialogue was bad um the cgi was bad the i heard like the best part of it was the damn dog whatever the hell that thing is so i'm like you know what let me check this out when I have absolutely... I'll file this under Iron Fist when I have absolutely nothing else to watch. And just keep it like that. Yeah, this could have been on Netflix. Or, like, paid programming. Yeah. That's what it could have been on. Or, or, Nick It could have been on one of those. <laughs> right, it could have been on one of them late night public access channels. Because I don't think anybody was really checking for this. I think if you're going to use IMAX, you need to use it like for something that we are like. That could have been something like the Defenders or something they could have did something else. They could have did like a one shot story of Jessica Jones or something. something. Right. It's a mess. Speaking of messes. <laughs> so, so Queen of Snakes came out with a video called Look What You Made Me Do which was supposed to be heard if you song from a long way album for all white girls everywhere and confused queers um, so what did are we waiting what did we make her do we made her say petty and continue Feuds with people who really don't give a damn about her. That's what we did. Okay. Um, so she put out this video, which seems to be supposedly a dig towards Kanye and Kim. Which I'm like, you need to leave Kanye alone, especially Kim, because Kim, you know, that's that family of Kardashians or a, a group of witches, and you, they need to watch out because she got you before Taylor. She can get mm-hmm. you again. It didn't even take that much to get you. But it didn't take much at all, but somebody hitting the record button on the iPhone. No, but it's really funny because I'm like, you got caught lying. This is how you retaliate. So basically what you're telling us is this is how you handle situations when your ass is in the wrong. You still go separate, act like a little brat. But okay. And a victim. But she didn't say yeah. that, oh, what was said wasn't true. Oh, no. You got caught. You need to just own all of that. But she didn't. But anyway, so... She put out this video, and there were clips that were already coming out. And in a couple of clips, there were her and her slave trade um, brigade behind her. 
She had all these gays of color lined up from the darkest to lightest, black to Latino. Again, it was like Miss Millie had her favorite slaves on the stage. And um, they were all dancing to her. What kind of got a lot of us was the fact that we saw Todrick Hall in the background. Now, for me, I saw Todrick Hall and I was like, okay, I knew they were friends or whatever. So I'm assuming that he's going to do more and just be a backup dancer. Video comes out. Nope, he's a backup dancer. And I'm like, okay. Okay. And the optics of that to me was like, here you are, a black man dancing behind this white woman, but also behind a woman who's problematic. Um, but you out here supporting, out here caping for it too, because every five seconds there was some article with him talking about how we all hypocrites were coming after her or whatever, whatever. But it just came off to me like you're her favorite Negro and you were out here dancing background to her. And I think I tweeted that I find it fascinating because you've, he's done a lot of great things. He's done a great Oz tribute. He's done, you know, different little videos here and there, been featured on Drag Race. And I just feel like that for all that you've done, even had a TV show at MTV, all that you've done, this is the peak is you being background. So I looked at it like, okay, that's your peak. Now I think of Big Frida. Big Frida, everybody knows Big Frida, Queen of Bounce Music. Uh, and then got noticed plenty of places. RuPaul did a song with Big Frida. Big Frida, you know, moved mainstream, got her own show. Got featured in Lemonade. But not only featured in Lemonade, but got to say a few bars in Lemonade. You know, got to say something in uh, formation. But then was invited to introduce Beyonce in Louisiana. Got to be on stage. Now, to me, that's where you need to strive for. It's like, not only are you featured, but you will be the bitch on the stage with the bitch. Not a bitch. Oh, you, yeah, you're going to be featured, but you're going to be in the background. You don't have nothing to say. You're just going to be back there with your contacts. And that's right. It. When his color contacts looking like he borrowed them from Whoopi Goldberg back in the 80s when she did Burglar. I'm like, come on now. Yeah. Why did you break up Burglar? Why did you break up Burglar? <laughs> all about the movie you brought up. You remember when she had them crystal ass uh, blue contacts? Oh, come on now. I will not revisit. <laughs> I will not revisit that. And I was disappointed. Now, you know, there was plenty of, you know, we now we came for Todrick. We did. And then there was some, which funny, it was a lot of white gays defending him. And I was like, of course I would defend him. He had some things to say, and I really didn't pay attention to it. But again, this is not really, we wasn't hating on him. For me, I was disappointed. Because I feel like for all the things you have done, you should not be at the background, doing this as a background. And I don't care if you are her friend. When Paula Abdul was a friend of Janet Jackson, not only was she was in her videos, but she had speaking parts. And it was very <laughs> known that they were friends. And also she was a choreographer. Bitch ain't said nothing about you since the video came out. You mm-hmm. just didn't back up. I don't. And, I, I didn't really fuck with Todrick because I always thought that he was... That one black gay that let his white gay friend say nigga. I always thought that he thought that he was better than us 
other black gays that, oh, since I'm, you know, those type that once they get a little bit of money, they act like they didn't, they didn't come from the hood. Where they got that white, you know, that white gays, you know, when they have, they are part of that clique. Right. So I really wasn't fucking with him, even though I, I'm not taking away his talent. He is a talented ass guy. He can dance, he can sing, you know, he could do all this jazz and whatnot. And I happen to enjoy a lot of his skits, especially uh, his Beauty and the Beat one. Now, I have an issue with him. He capes so hard for Taylor. And I'm like, okay, you know, go ahead and get your check. You know, the check's still processing. I get that. But don't say that what our issues or what that we bring up is invalid because it is, you know, and then he's like, Oh, I saw him trying to get into, uh, he got in a conversation or a debate with, um, Adrian expression. Um, and they were going back and forth. I was like, Oh, this is some good tea. But Adrian made a, a valid point and he's like, oh, I still got my Beyonce card, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I'm like, girl, it's... She ain't calling you. Right. She, <laughs> she's too busy dealing with them twins and uh, trying to get Blue Ivy together because you know Blue Ivy been having the girls out. Just messy. But I, I, really, I never really saw it for Todrick. I, 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 I do see it for him. I just really want him to kind of understand the overall, uh, the bigger picture of all of this. And while you can keep her, that's totally fine. But understand that your friend is problematic. I understand that this could backfire because you're working with her so tight and keeping for her so tight. And she's at a phase where a lot of folks, ain't, I mean, it's like teen white girls who keeping for her, but it ain't like, um, it's not like. Everybody else is keeping for her. And I think, yeah, you mess. She doesn't have, she's not the fave as people. She's not the fave that she used to be. So, like, you can do that, but don't get your career messed up. Right. It's, it's like how these people be keeping for Trump. Like, don't get your face knocked out because right, you were freaking. can't get these hands. Right? So that's why part of me is like, dude, you you might want to like, yeah, that was fun. And then just leave it alone because you still got to build a career. She got hers. You still got to build yours. And what someone reminded me is, it was like, you have to remember, he's still not there. Like, he's still not at a level where he is. Like, he, like he's not like at a Paul Abdul level. Like, he's very talented, but yet we don't see him beyond YouTube. You know what I'm saying? Right. Or we don't see him. He had a show, but it did not last. And all those things. And again, I'm not trying to hate on him, but I'm just saying that he has to think about those bigger picture pieces. And he probably is. But I'm just saying that don't be using this as a way in because this may be the way shut you out. And also, don't forget us because we bring people into the game and we take them right on out. Right. Power of Black Twitter, no joke. And that's why I'm sitting here. And, and most of y'all know that a good chunk of Black Twitter is Black gay, gay Twitter, Black queer Twitter. So therefore, if we don't see it for you, I'm just saying. So I feel like he needs to do some work with us because we ain't gonna see it for him. Now these white gays will see it for him because they need a probably need a monkey to dance for. But I'm just saying, at the end of the day, you need to remember who we are, and you need to remember who you are. Exactly. 
but you know, whatever. Oh, and and another thing, he's saying that she's she can dance and all this jazz. I was like, look, hitting the grand a grand plie ain't dancing. I know. Uh, I was like, what is she doing? She look. There are eleven year old girls out here in Pep Squad doing better than that. Right. I'm like, okay. She's the hardest dancer out here. Okay. Literally nobody out there is dancing. Okay. No. Beehive for that one too. Because they I I saw some beehive people like, don't put Beyonce in your mouth because you danced for her back in two thousand six or whatever they said. I don't know. I think he's done something more recent than that. But um yeah, I I feel bad for him. Like I want I'm happy that he is getting his money. I just want him to remember that this game there's a there's a long haul play to this game. I hope he's just able to go the long haul. Right. But, you know, whatever. Well, I guess that's it for our tea. As we told you, we didn't have a lot this week because people ain't showed out yet. Thank God. I mean, damn, we could dealing with these hurricanes. We dealing with these fires in uh fucking L.A. There's fires in Oregon. I mean, there was a listen, Mother Nature. It's like y'all gonna have to go one way or another. Either I'm gonna drown you, I'm gonna burn you. I'm only five miles from those fires in L.A. So I, I, we literally could stand up and watch it. And I did. <laughs> I got some pictures of it. But, um, you know, we, it was weird to be like, Friday night, you're outside. First you could smell. And I was mad at people trying to grill. I'm like, why y'all grilling out here when the damn hills are burning? <laughs> they were not alive. They were. I'm like, y'all are grilling. There's ash. There's literally ash out on everything. Like, there's ash all over the place. So I'm like, why y'all acting up? But anyway, uh, yeah, Mother Nature is no joke. This has not been cute, so... Maybe that maybe that's the balance. I mean, besides Trump and his funky fairness. We're not gonna go into that because I could say some things that were probably you know, we're not gonna do that. Let's go take a break and we're coming back with our king size issue with a very two very special guests. Yes. Hey, this is Steph Rywell. Join me by Weekly at the Lemonade for all things nerdy and geeky, giving you all the sweet and sour notes from the nerd world, as well as my own special commentary to make this blend of lemonade just right. Follow the Lemonade at Audio Boom SoundCloud, High Bean at the Points of Interest Network, and I'll see you guys soon. All right, everybody, we are back, and we are very excited today because we have an exciting guest. Um, yes, 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 yes. And, <laughs> and I, I can't really, I can't really describe how I feel because, in a lot of ways, this is this speaks a lot to me in my college years, and also and just everything else because this was just a good time in my life so this is my childhood right here and you know i i can't stop smiling right now um i'm over the moon so who do we have victor (laughs) well we have special guests today we have people who gave us from the best years of our young lives x-men the the animated series yes Uh, yes we have julia julia say hi to 
Hi, you got Julia Leewald here. Hi, and, and Eric Leewald. And, and Eric, we got. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just stunned. So I can't even talk at this point. I'm just happy. <laughs> you're happy. Because there's just so much about this about this TV show. Because I'll say this: I'm jumping off subject, kind of, but not. I was so excited when this premiered. I was looking forward to it. I started reading X Men in high school, and then just to have them in my face was like everything to me. Especially the Sea Storm. But anyway, <laughs> that's why I'm all over the place right now. But anyway, I'm, I'll let. Go ahead. <laughs> heard from a lot of folks that um, X Men, the animated series, for for many of them was was a way into the whole universe of X Men, uh, and and we're, we're grateful to have been given that opportunity and to have introduced a lot of kids to a lot of young people to to that world. Yes, yes, it, it was my first introduction into comics and superheroes, and I remember. I remember it like it was just like yesterday, like it coming on right after I was coming off from school and it was just or Saturday mornings. It, it was just one of the best things about my childhood that I can remember. And so I'm thrilled that you guys are here on our show. Oh, and when you when you say it feels like yesterday, uh, we, we got to come clean here. Uh, the, one of the reasons uh, we're, we're up and about and talking to folks about X-Men, the animated series and, you know, sort of uh, having these conversations is because good night nurse. We are coming up on the 25th anniversary of the debut of X-Men, the animated series. I know, mm-hmm. I know. Halloween night, 1992 was the <sighs> night it magically premiered. Um, <laughs> sneak preview. Sneak preview on Fox kids take over Fox. Mm-hmm. And that's just remember, you know, what they did. What they didn't admit to was that <laughs> that, that was awful late. It was supposed to premiere, uh, in uh, early September, along with Batman, but their production problems, and so uh, we ha- it got held off, and then uh, started really properly in January. But but yeah, that was uh, it wasn't an easy first year when we were putting the show together. Mm-hmm. And Batman the animated series, they're having their twenty fifth uh, anniversary, I believe, today, either today yeah. or yeah. So it's yep. just everything's coming back full circle as far as you know childhood memories. Oh, Especially I, in the comic book uh, world, I know. Oh my god, I was eighteen. I rem- I was eighteen, a freshman in college, and we would always crowd the TV in the lobby every early morning. It was funny to see how many of us would just get up that early, especially after partying, and come down and watch <laughs> every Saturday morning. Wow! And and let me sort of also suggest here, even though it feels like it was yesterday. Uh, when this was coming out, you know, not everybody had a VCR. Not everybody had an ability to tape something and play it later. Mm-hmm. So it was one of the first forms for a certain generation of must-see appointment TV. And if you didn't see it, you couldn't just play it back on your laptop or your cell phone because those things didn't exist back then. <laughs> yep, yeah. yep. Before the web. And, and, what, <laughs> and it's hard to think back now, but... Uh, the lady that made sure that the show got on, her name's Margaret Lesh, who was the president of Fox Kids and who had pushed to try to, she'd been trying for seven, eight years to get X-Men on TV and nobody out here in LA thought it would work. They said, oh, Marvel shows don't work. They're, they're silly. They're, they're, don't, no, we, we can't get an audience for them. Stop bothering us with this. So when, when, when we started it and when, uh, most of the people around here thought that it wasn't going to last more than one season and that nobody would watch. Right. 
Oh wow! So <laughs> so, how did you all get attached to the the show? What was yeah? How did you all get you know interested and then sign on on the show? Well, um, just to give a little of, of my background um, and and not to uh, overstep myself here. Uh, I was a, an I was an episodic writer for the series. I got to write specific episodes, and I also got to be a fly on the wall for when Eric and um, his friend um, Mark Edens, when they were frantically thrashing out the first thirteen episodes, and then the rest of the series run. I got to contribute story ideas and other things as well. Um, but but Eric gets full credit for being the show runner and the head story writer for the entire series run. So any problems, take them up with him. Yeah. But. <laughs> but, but yeah, to, just, just to answer your question, there's, it's almost like any other business. The animation production world out here is a small community of people. And I'd work in it about seven, eight years by that time. Julie would work in it three or four. And uh, a gentleman that was the lead assistant to Margaret Lashie at Fox his name is Sidney Iwander, who is who's an amazing executive. He he supervised us, Batman, The Tick, Spider Man. He was he was hands on on all these uh, Beetlejuice, which I worked, uh, which I did for him. Anyway, um, in this small community here, uh, I'd worked for him a couple times um, earlier uh, uh, in my career, and so we got along. He's a very strange man. Very strange but, man. <laughs> but but we got along great. And so when push came to shove, when they got the show sold, the president of the network said, okay, Sydney, who's going to be, you know, who do you want? Who do you feel most comfortable or fits best for this very different kind of show? Very more adult, very you know, different from the other shows we've got on. And, uh, he, you know, to his credit, now Owen forever, uh, he picked me. I didn't, I didn't know until the night before, uh, we started uh, that I that I was going to be involved in it all. I did. He just told me that night. Said, "Oh, by the way, come over to Chaim Saban's building, and uh, Marvel's going to be there, Stan Lee and everybody. And oh, by the way, you're going to be writing X Men. And I'm just sitting there swallowing because I hadn't read the book. <laughs> I, I read some other Marvel comics, but I just kind of got, got dropped in the deep end and said, "Okay, you're going to be in charge of the stories because I, I like the way you write." But you're going to have to learn these people real fast. So uh, that was, it was just it's purely, you know, uh, uh, a personal, you know, personal business connection that that he thought I was right. That he thought I fit. And that was and that's how I got the job. And in fact, they Sydney had approached Eric about uh, starting work on a different show. And so, OK, Eric's going to go in and talk to him about that. And then he's not kidding. The night before that meeting was to occur, he, Eric gives the other phone call saying, um, no, I've got a different project for you. It's called X-Men. And, and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. I don't know. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, and there's no there's no internet. I can't Google it. Uh, right, right. <laughs> and I, I have to run to friends and say, do you have any back issues? And so, And there was no, you know, so it was, uh, it was a quick learn, quick learning curve. That's excellent. It, you know, it's, it's amazing how a business and – you know, the entertainment industry can change that quick. You know, you think you're working on one thing and then the next you're working on this and it has to be done tomorrow. So it's, it's almost, uh, almost breathtaking to how fast it can change. Well, um, and I'm sorry, you mentioned uh, the, the brilliant Batman, the animated series is celebrating its 25th anniversary. 
mm-hmm. X-Men was conceived as a companion piece for them to originally air together. But when Eric got the call to go in for the meeting, Batman was already in pre-production and had been for. They, the, the, that was, that was cut, cut of the, one of the struggles for us. They'd been working on that for about a year, getting it ready. And then we got this late call saying, well, we'd like you to do it too. So hurry up <laughs> and just write the stuff, you know, have it for us yesterday. And so that first year was a real scramble, but uh, yeah. There you go. So, Mark, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, so talk to us about uh, the the process as far as the creation and of one of some of the episodes. So what's the the overall flow? It was interesting that that uh, Margaret Lesh uh, at Fox had the I'm going word courage seems a little well, that, but had the foresight and the, then the courage and the wisdom to say, okay, I really want this show to work. It's based on these comic book characters. It's based on this universe. And so I will let you guys have a connecting but, story arc, which yeah. had not happened in TV animation yeah, we, before. Yeah, the, if you look back and you think about it, most cartoons, they just don't let them be uh, connected. So that was one of the differences. And Will Minio, who is the head uh, producer, director, designer, and, and I, and Sydney, and we all agreed that's the way comic books were, and we wanted to respect the comics as much as we could. And so we pushed, we pushed for that that first year to have the, the 13 stories connected and, you know, kind of something to set us apart. But in, in coming up with the, the, uh, with the episodes, that was hard. I mean, here was all these people, the, the, the network people had certain ideas about what they might want and Marvel, you know, who they wanted. And, and even just, even just picking the team, forget about getting the stories, deciding, okay, there's been, 19 or 20 different people have been X-Men. Who's going to be our six or seven, eight people? And if you'll notice, uh, I mean, one of the fun things was when everybody sat down and agreed on who might fit best together, not in that main list were Beast, Jean Grey, or Professor Xavier. As we wrote the first 15 episodes, they kind of asserted themselves. As I started going back through the books and realizing we can't tell these stories without Professor X. We can't tell these stories without Gene. And Beast is just so much fun. Uh, heck with him. We're going to make him, you know, we're make him prominent. So what was decided that first week as far as who the team was going to be uh, evolved as we wrote the stories. And, and then as far as picking the stories, that was another, you know, for fans, if, if I'm an X-Men fan, I'm wondering, are they going to do, you know, uh, Uncanny X-Men number 90, you know, or, or what, what stories are going to adapt? And the, those of us that were laying the stories out, we really didn't know this. We didn't have favorite stories yet. We just were, we just learned who everybody was and picked, I had, we had something called the, uh, you know, the Marvel universe from the mid eighties that had everybody's relationships. It's kind of an encyclopedia everybody's relationships, everybody's powers, everybody's personal histories, everybody's loves and hates and all that. And so except for days of future past, which Julia wrote half of, uh, that first, that first 13, pretty much, or actually the first 26 were pretty much, we were picking and choosing bits and putting together stories that, that were kind of original. And also because, Comic books don't quite transfer, you know, one to one to TV shows. It's a little right. different storytelling. 
So we have to get bits and pieces from one and from another. And, and, and it's just, it's talk to people that, that have written both. And I have never written a comic, so I don't even know if I could. It's, it's, it's tough to do it right. Um, it's just kind of a different way of storytelling. So when people ask, you know, which stories did we pick? We just, we, we went by the characters. We looked, what would be the story that let's make up a story using bits and pieces from the real Marvel world that will best show what Wolverine's soul is like. Let's show what rogue cares most deeply about. Let's show what means the most to professor X. Like we made up that story, one man's worst, which is okay. What would the world be like if he died at, when he was in college instead of been able to make the X-Men. Right. And so that we, we would, we would start with the character and then we'd go to all the old books or the old, or the reference material and say, Oh, uh, here's somebody that will show, uh, let's, here's more McTaggart. She'll show professor X's heart and soul, uh, more. Here's, here's the Shi'ar. Let's pull them in to do something with him. And so it all, when we were sitting around trying to figure out what stories to tell, we always just started with the character. And once in a while later, we did a direct adaptation like the Phoenix Saga or Dark Phoenix Saga. But most, almost all, most of the stories were, we went into it thinking that they were original. And then we used bits and pieces from, that we'd find within the Marvel Universe. Also at that time, Marvel was located in New York City, and we were out here in Los Angeles. And again, this is going in the Wayback Machine, but business offices closed on Friday, and they reopened Monday morning. We would have to go to a CVS pharmacy to fax material to them because that was high technology. No no, no email. Right. (laughs) So, I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so so it was – it was kind of like they handed us their baby, and it was, it was wonderful. I mean, obviously, it benefited them, but they, you know, they looked over every single word we wrote, and they were supportive. And they had a couple of great guys. One guy's named Bob Harris, who was the head X Men writer at the time, and became their editor in chief. Right now, he's DC's editor in chief, so he's staying in the business. Anyway, Bob would go over everything we'd write up, every idea, premise, outline, script. And he'd write us back and he'd write me back and say, no, you know, this really is out of character for Wolverine or this is something that uh, I think Storm would do something else here. So we had experts looking over our shoulder, make sure we didn't we didn't take it in the wrong direction. Right. Was there ever when did you all realize that you had something really good or that, hey, this is becoming something more than we never even imagined. Was there a time or do you even remember if that ever happened? Well, here's um, from, from my seat kind of at the, at the writer's table, Eric was um, brought on to story edit and he had person for the first, the first 13 episode season of X-Men. But that was it. There was no pickup for any anybody. Well, yeah, that's right. They, when, when they hired us, nowadays you know, in Hollywood, if you've got any chance of success, they, they hire and give you a contract for five or six years in case it's successful. And they just hired us on for the first year. They just didn't think it was gonna, they're going to bother past the 13. Not a lot of confidence. <laughs> so so that, was, that was what we started with. But there were I'd say there were two times. One was... In looking through this world, I think I and the, the and Mark Edens, who helped me lay out the first twenty six episodes, 
we saw that it was a pretty rich place. But we've been we've been many many years in the business, and you can get what looks like a really special show, and then you just have to have one person in a position of influence or, or leverage uh, that can say, "Oh no no no, uh, Spider Man needs a funny dog, or uh, the thing needs a goofy robot, or you need, you know, somebody makes a decision, and it can ruin the whole." Uh, the TV shows are fragile things. For every one that's successful, there's hundreds that almost get it right or, or end up terrible and often with very talented people involved in them. And so you go into something and you're always hoping it's going to be wonderful. And so we hoped at the beginning and we fought during the whole eight, nine months till the animation all came back to think that we were doing the show we wanted to do. But we didn't know until I think after that October 31st screening and we saw that first episode and with all oh, this is right because there were a lot of stages in there. First animation we got back was from overseas was awful. The first recordings we got back from the voice talent, which I don't know if y'all know, they recorded it up in, in Toronto, Canada. So we sent all we sent the scripts you know script up there and and we got back audio cassettes that shows how old it was. <laughs> and, and the first round, first time they tried it. They didn't quite get that we wanted to do a serious show. So we got kind of a goofy Scooby-Doo version of the X-Men back from them. We thought, okay, it's over. It's it's toast. We're, we've, we've ruined it. And so that made everybody double down and push harder to get it exactly the way we wanted it, which was, very, was a very serious, very respectful kind of X-Men. And like, you know, 30-minute dramas, 30-minute movies. And then it all came together. And when finally, when the animation was together and was cut together and everything, all the elements were together, it was, it was that, it was October 31st and we saw it. This could really be something. And then, of course, we didn't know if everybody was going to love it. I mean, we'd worked on shows before that we thought were good and people didn't take to. So when it premiered in January um, and, three, and premiered at number one, and then stayed there and got bigger and big. So the fans did it. I mean, they they proved it right away that oh, okay, this is we've somehow captured this special, mysterious, successful thing that you know we work on forty shows in our careers and it almost never happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is one of the most influential cartoons, and in, as far as cartoons go that has ever been created so yeah i say you all hit gold good <laughs> well i i always sort of in in, in defense of dear old x-men it's like i say i'm thrilled that the show itself has been um uh, a, a way into the whole x-men universe for so many people but i'll also say that x-men the animated series is an important bridge between that big universe and and the billion-dollar industry that the films have become. Because without that X-Men universe, there would not be the films. That's my, that's my take on things. I stand by my position. The, yeah, that's I, true. That's very yeah. true. I agree with that. I, I do have a question. Go ahead. I, I'm, uh, I was going to say, I'm very curious about, for example, when you, when you went for the voices of the characters, uh-huh. like how were you able to kind of find the right fit for each of the characters. How was that search and how was that process? Well, that was, that, that was, was fascinating to me because not 
um, I guess it's the kind of thing that if you're a screenwriter and you imagine something in your mind and then start the casting process and it's almost like you can describe the roughly what you're looking for, but until you hear it, you're not sure. And in that, what happened was somehow a bunch of us on the creative side ended up with a very similar idea of the way these characters should be. And so when the first recordings went so badly, a bunch of us, not me, unfortunately, I was frantically trying to get scripts done, but the network executive, Sydney and, and the producer director, uh, Larry Houston is wonderful. Uh, first African American and a producer director of a show like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, they went up to Canada and spent a week just making sure that the voices were right. And they were there with that guy to say, Bob Harris. And Bob Harris had been doing X-Men for 10 years. He knew them backwards and forwards. But as he said, he looked over and said, I've been writing these characters. I've been reading these characters. I've never heard them before. And he just, he said it was, it was magical, you know, suddenly having them come to life. It was for us too. It was us, you know, when we heard the audio cassette and we'd pick, say, okay, this guy's really close to Wolverine, but no, no, this guy is, man, that's, that's, that's what I've been hearing in my head. And luckily there was pretty much of a consensus uh, for almost all the characters that, uh, you know, this actor got it. And, and it took a while. Uh, uh, Rogue almost did an audition Wolver- for half the cast. It was their first voice, first cartoon, their first voiceover gig ever. They either were oh, wow. commercial work or they were theatrical actors. Uh, that was a, a moment of sort of um, realization when, when the first, the very first batch of voice tapes came back and it was apparent that there was a disconnect between what X-Men was trying to, was hoping to be and what was typically presumed to be, Oh, a Saturday morning kids cartoon. These are what the voices are going to sound like. That's not to say that those people aren't talented, but they were the, they were the wrong voice for this. So then when Sydney and Larry went up there sort of digging it down, going, okay, we need folks who, who have a different kind of gravitas. And where do you find that? Where do you get that kind of experience and sound? And it was theater scene. Okay, yeah. let's go look at theatrical voices, people who know yeah. how to do this and stuff. Toronto has a big theater world like New York City does. Mm-hmm. And the, the casting director named Karen Gura, who's wonderful, uh, Sydney had her and the voice director, Dan Hennessy, specifically said, guys, get us – people that do Shakespeare, get us theatrical voices, get us people that can do drama. And they did that on that second, that second look. And to be honest, after the first ones that were so terrible, when we got those tapes back, we got three or four good choices for every role. And what they did was if we like, really like somebody, say it was our second favorite uh, uh, Wolverine, uh, they they use him for for something else. I think the the runner up for Wolverine got Cable, as an example. You know, so they 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 used that first run of uh, casting to find the people that really had a feel for serious cartoon for serious uh, super uh, uh, hero stories, and just and then once once word got out in Toronto that all these like top actors were were being part of the show all their friends heard about it and they wanted to be on the show too. So we got lots of very cool secondary people. An embarrassment of riches at that point. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know who the guy that did apocalypse was. John, uh, Colicos. 
Holocaust. Yeah, I think it's Holocaust. I've never met him, okay. but yeah, that's that's the word. It just shows what geeks we are. Yes. <laughs> you guys may know this, but he was the very first Klingon ever. 1967 on in the original Star Trek. Mm-hmm. The Klingon commander that goes down with with Kirk on the errand of mercy and is <laughs> going to turn uh, Spock's mind into a vegetable. That guy, <laughs> that guy was our apocalypse. Yes. And so, you know, we could all geek out like maniacs because someone with that level of a voice was one of our voices. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty special. Only big regret. We never got to go up there and meet the talent because that's just, it was a, the budgets were so skinny and tight. It was just yeah, never. They didn't have airline ticket money. So, <laughs> so and you were always way behind. So we always have to keep cranking scripts fast. And there was no time to take a couple of weeks and go up there and have fun with those guys. Because yeah. we hear they had fun parties up there, the cast. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's when I think of apocalypse, that's who I think of immediately. And there's like, yeah. there's no substitute for me. Yeah, yeah I, I go on YouTube occasionally just to see those uh, apocalypse clips people put together. Yeah, voice. <laughs> oh my gosh! And those lines, like <laughs> when he said, some of those lines are like beyond iconic to me. Um, and I just he's apocalypse, and everybody who played their role is that character. You know, there's sure. Um, like in the the movies, Hugh Jackman he does a great job of Wolverine, but to me, yeah. Cal Todd is Wolverine. Yeah. Won't argue. Won't argue. He's yeah, he is the voice. I, they're all the voices I hear in my head when I read the comic, when I see an image. And, it's and, those voices. And so, if you, I'm sure you guys know that uh, that the when they made the first movie, uh, Brian Singer, they they didn't sit around reading comic books. They all just sat and watched our show. And so yeah. <laughs> when Kel Dodd, uh, he met, met Hugh Jackman when he got, when he got cast as the first Wolverine. So they shook hands and Hugh Jackman said, man, I am tired of listening to your voice. I don't know, if I can get close, but I've heard all 76. So, <laughs> you know, so yeah, that was, we, that, that was their learning. That was where they learned to do X-Men was from our show. I have to say that when I think about the voices, like I can't like, Whoever, again, with Rogue, I'm so glad that worked out because that's how I always pictured her talking even before I even saw the cartoon. Um, I think of some of the lines that Rogue would say, like she would say things like, I ain't no lady or like I, things that she would say. And I mean, then when the cartoon came out, I was like, oh, my God, that is what I envisioned. The way she said sugar um, <laughs> this, is perfect. Like, this is her. And Storm, I, I know y'all know that y'all have created the, the, her voice is iconic in so many different ways. This most of her speeches of, and her commands yeah. and how, the way she carried herself. I mean, that was what everybody looked at when when they initially started doing the comic book, well, the the X Men movies. I was like, oh, is Storm going to have these commandments of the elements? Is she's going to? Is she going to have an accent? Is she going to do this? Is she going to do that? I mean, the X-Men animated series is what everybody looked to as uh, as groundwork, as as a, a study guide. As You know, it's... So, touching, going to the, the X-Men movies, how do you all feel about its portrayal on the big screen? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled 
that they made the movies. <laughs> a little bit behind the scenes story was uh, Dear Margaret Lesh, uh, president of Fox Kids. It took her years to get the animated show up and running. And then when that happened, she had the, I say, vision to go to the folks at, at Fox and say, you need to make a live action feature. And then they nah. Yeah, yeah they, they kind of resisted. No, you need to. Nah. But, but, yeah. but, you know, there's a real mix. There's a mixture. There's obviously, we lived with these characters for five years, mm-hmm. thinking and thinking and writing them and, and being with them. So we have very strong feelings about, uh, about when they're portrayed again. And there's some spectacular, wonderful things in the movie. I mean, in the movies. I mean, if if I had been asked to, to cast Professor X, I mean, how can you do better? Uh, there, there are, you know, half the cast is Marvel. They they spent the money. They got the look. They've been they've been thus they've been kind of hit and miss. Some of them have been much more involving and 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 better movies, and others have been weaker. Which any you know, over nine movies, you're going to get that. The one thing I and and obviously uh, Hugh Jackman's great um, as as everybody that loves books says he's a little tall because Wolverine's supposed to be five three but you know, he, you know he can help that act shorter yeah but <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, but he but the just the one of the one of the one of the things that you were talking about Storm and Rogue one of the things that was a little disappointing to us was I don't think they quite got how to use the women as well as we did. And I think that's something that I know, agree. We had weaknesses, we had strengths, but I think the women were equal partners in our show and they were powerful and they were exert, uh, assertive and they kind of put rogue off into kind of a quasi jubilee young rogue character. And I don't think they were quite figured out what to do with storm. They just had a Halle Berry standing there looking beautiful and not really contributing much to, uh, of her character, to the, and, and, you know, there's a limit. There's so many, there are eight or nine characters. You can't have them all perfect. But if you had to ask us for a, a weaker thing that they did, I think they were weaker with the women. I agree with that. That's a, that's a great assessment because, again, going by the cartoon, you had Rogue going head to head with Apocalypse, going head to head with the Gladiator, um, because like because Colossus wasn't there. She was the Colossus character in the sense of being the strong arm and you had those just those wonderful zingers that she had but also with storm because i think about in the earlier comics she would have speeches about how dare you you know attack you know the things she would say and when we get to the movies we just did not get that and i i judged it by the cartoon and the comic but mostly by the cartoon because to me it was that was the visual um visual, audio, everything of what I thought they would be on screen. Yeah, and let us look back and realize it was 92 when it came out, and I'm a girl here, but let me say uh, the, the ladies of X-Men and the men of X-Men, they were truly equal partners in this. Mm-hmm. And like Eric just said, the women were, in my opinion, stronger, and they could fly! You know, and, but... but you didn't see any little boy running around the playground not wanting to be Wolverine because there was a strong female character wanting to be Storm. You never, I mean, that didn't happen. Those, those kinds of crazy fears that um, certain executives have or certain toy companies have that, well, boys don't want to won't play that because that's a girl thing or the girls won't go there because that's a boy thing. X-Men just put it out there that these people are, are a unit and they all have their strengths and weaknesses and some are women and some are men, but let's just go tell a good story. 
And I kind of miss that now. Mm -hmm. So in one of the episodes in Nightcrawler, uh, when he was announced and revealed, he talked a lot about his religion and his faith in God. Do you all, how did you all even get that on a cartoon? Because that was like something crazy in that day and age to have a kid's show talk about religion so openly. You're right, it was. <laughs> yeah, there, were, there were four or five things that, 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 uh, that were real stretches for us. Luckily, we started with, I say, an executive who wanted to push the envelope. Anything that would scare other networks uh, City would just say, "Oh, do it! You know, do it more!" <laughs> you know, the, and so we had support from them. And what happened? Uh, to answer your question, the hardest part, especially of children's programming for for broadcast networks over the past seventy years, is there's a thing called broadcast standards and practices (BSNP), and that's basically the censor. And they say, you know, we can't have hardcore sex on ABC or NBC. Well. There's certain violent things, and things have gotten looser and looser and looser and looser. But back in the old days, uh, they were very, very strict about what you could show, it, especially, and it was much stricter on children's shows. So the first thing we did was we got a good relationship with a lady there named Avery Coburn, who was in charge of Fox Kids' standards. And if she had said, we can't have these guys fighting. We can't have them being angry with each other. We can't have them, you know, we can't have any of this superhero stuff. That just would have been law, and we just had to go with it. And so one of the first, but she luckily was a very thoughtful woman. She actually really liked the books, the comic books. And so when we went to her, there were two or three big things like like with uh, the religion. First one was killing Morph. It took, and it took about two or three weeks of back and forth with her. Her initial reaction was, what do you mean you want to kill a character? Or what do you mean you want to talk about God? We can't do that. We'll get 10,000 letters from angry parents, and you know, they'll want to shut down the network. And so in each of those cases, it just became a very respectful back and forth process with her, knowing that she had a job to do, and saying, look, if the whole... You're doing X-Men, and Nightcrawler is one of the main characters over the years. His whole reason for being is that he's a, he's devout. He does some other stuff. He has some other background. But that's similar to half a dozen other people in the X-Men universe. It's not all that special. What's absolutely special and core to his character is that he's devoutly Christian. Well, uh, so she's, she said, okay, let's talk this through. And it took a long time. Right, it took tiptoeing and being very careful, but it took someone that was willing to, to get in trouble and have her job threatened to let us do it. And so that was a combination of one executive saying, push it, push the boundaries, and the other executive saying, well, I'll, I trust you, let's see what you get, what you give me. And so that it was, believe me, it wasn't easy, but it's exactly the kind of thing that we wanted to do. And it's like the whole show itself. We've worked on dozens of other shows. Nine times out of ten, they don't let you tell stories like that. They're just too scared or just don't think kids care. And so when you get a, when you get people that will let you, you got to run with it. Right. It's not often you're going to hear people talk about the executives on a project um, nicely and in such a positive way. But again, 
Margaret Lesh, the president of Fox Kids, Sydney Iwaner, her, her right-hand guy, and then Avery Coburn, broadcast standards and practices for a kids show, and she was willing to make these, let these choices be made and willing to stand by them. More than once, you know, every person involved had to sort of do one of those, all right, my career's on the line, but I make this call. Yeah, we're not going to back down and change the show, sorry. And, and it was great. And, and, and it was nice because I think before the show premiered, it was a lot harder because people didn't know it was going to be successful. Then once it started making everybody a lot of money, it became easier to put our foot down and say, guys, you know, we got you this far. Don't screw it up. You know, so, uh, so yeah, to answer your question, that was a real, everybody sat down and said, wait a minute, are we going to be able to do this religion, this religious episode or not? And then I just said, if we're going to do, if we're going to do Nightcrawler, we've got to have this. It can't, it can't, we can't step around it. And, it, and they let us, so. And also the whole irony of Dear Nightcrawler looking the way he looks. He looks demonic. Right, yeah. And in spite of the way he looks, he himself has, as, as Eric said, is is a chord about Christian. That doesn't mean anybody else in the show is or anybody else involved, but for Nightcrawler, that is who he is. And uh, we, we get, I, I see the episode gets ripped mercilessly occasionally about the the folks showing up with pitchforks and torches in the opening. <laughs> also have laser blasters, you know, and cell phones. But, you know, we're, oh, we're, we're establishing a location, you know, and an odd sort of Bavarian location. Yeah. Where, yeah. That was odd that we couldn't have realistic guns because that was kind of a rule, one of these kids' rules. Oh. That's why there's blasters everywhere. Yeah. And you really you weren't ever supposed to hit anybody in the face. We weren't ever supposed to be any blood anywhere. That's why Wolverine could never stab anybody. Right. Uh, they always had to threaten to. And that, to be honest, is the reason we chose to start the first season with the Sentinels. Because we could rip the hell out of them and blow the hell out of them. Yeah. And that was okay because they weren't people. If they'd been super villains that we were fighting against, then we couldn't have ever even scratched them. And, but they were also a genuine menace uh, yeah. and, and, a, and a big yeah. bad villain. Plus they were a perfect, a perfect embodiment of intolerance and uh, uh, a governmental wanting to crack down on or your human spheres about about the mutants being different. Mm-hmm. I mean, having these massive robots coming after the mutants seemed to be the perfect incarnation of that for us. And we could tear them apart. So they, <laughs> they were doubly appropriate. <laughs> well, one of the things I want to know as we, get, as we kind of get into a little bit more about the stories, what was... What was some of the stories you wanted to get into, but you wasn't able to? What was some of the X-Men stories you wanted to tell? That's an interesting... I think... Okay, I'm going to take a sideways look at that. One of the challenges was when Eric and uh, the folks sat down and determined who ultimately would be on the X-Men team, um, unlike, say, Batman, where you're going to have Batman, and then somebody else, you know, basically every episode. Um, X-Men, you had a, a, a team of strong characters, and then it was the picking and choosing of whose story to tell and then how to service the other characters every time. You know, everyone had to be accounted for, and that took a 
up a certain amount of time, you know, if they were separated or apart, or who was over here on this, doing this assignment, who was doing that. Yeah, to, to be honest, there were there were a number, we had about 20 different people write for us over the 76 episodes. I mean, there are three or four guys that, that did half of them, but a lot of people did one or two episodes for us. And a number of them were big X-Men uh, fans and just, you know, knew every story backwards and forwards. And they had episodes that I know they were dying. They, they had stories from the books they were dying to get on. And that we just, for one reason or another, didn't uh, necessarily fit, fit or it seemed to be repetitive or seemed too expensive to produce because it was a modestly budgeted show. Um, so, to be honest, uh, I was so concerned with making sure that that the stories were good and that, we, that they were different and fresh and we weren't repeating ourselves. I was so focused on the balance of the whole thing that I never quite got to the point where I found a few that I really wanted to tell that they wouldn't let me. There were, there were a couple that happened inadvertently. There was one episode that didn't, that didn't get produced that I went all the way to script with with the writer. And that's there's a reference to that in the book. I'll tell you, tell you about it. But it was, a, it was an Omega Red uh, story that uh, took place, I think, on an island off Russia. In any case, uh, we didn't have any extra money. And so we wrote, the writer and I did this 40 page story together. And Marvel said, no, you know, this just doesn't feel right to us. It was the only time that happened out of 76. And so I had to read, come up with a story over the weekend, literally two days. And it was the submarine story with Omega Red, but the nuclear submarine. Yeah, and, with him and uh, him and Storm. Yeah, Storm, yeah, and we'll Logan. yeah. That one, that was that was my two day wonder. That was because we spent six weeks trying to make this other story work and make Marvel and the network happy with it, and they ended up not liking it. So they just looked at me and said, "Well, we don't have any extra money. We can't pay the writer to do it again. So it's on you to do this to do the forty pages over the weekend." So that was that was where the, the submarine story came from. That was the quick and dirty one. Oh, oh I just thought of something. Um, the wedding. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, one, the, one, the one thing we tried to do that they didn't let us do, which Bob, I have some fun with, <laughs> was at the end of the first season. I don't know if you remember, but Scott proposes to Jean. Yes. And we're just going to leave it. Okay, you're going to get married. And then, then the show was 13 over. We go off. We do some other work for a couple months. When we come back, what we were planning to do, just if they were going to let us do a second season, was to start out with them married and Jean pregnant. And about halfway through the season, we're going to have her have a double-beaten child. And that we, we actually wrote that out. Mark Eatons and I wrote that out as part of the, the next 13 episodes and had that be uh, a continuing thing in bits and pieces. And just about everybody else on the show, people we liked and trusted to do comic books better, said, guys, 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 don't you understand? 11-year-old boys are the core of our audience. And you want to have Jean running around with a seven, eight-month pregnant baby bump in her spandex <laughs> fighting superheroes. Can you step back from this for a minute? And remember <laughs> being like, oh, boy, this is not what we need. So they talked us out of having the double mutant child and having them be a family. That was the one thing that we had, that we pulled. And in part of that same story, uh, the whole 
the whole core of the X-Men series, and I thought it was such a brilliant, courageous decision, was in the opening, it was in a kid's show, to kill Morph. Morph killed in the first episodes. Why? To show the stakes are real. To prove that this is a dangerous world and that bad things can happen. And, you know, that, that's an incredibly important thing. And that was a huge fight, too. But again, you know, God bless Avery Coburn for having the courage to agree that, letting you do it. Then, so, so Mark is dead. Wolverine's mourning. That's the way it is. You know, and uh, we're all moving on with our lives uh, and planning for the next step of next season. And then Eric gets a call. Yeah, and we're about six months, or six, six weeks, say late February, into the show, I am the show in 1993, and it's this huge hit. And Fox is excited, and they do a little, they do a little research, and they ask the kids, probably the younger kids, who's your favorite character? And what the younger kids' focus groups called back with was Morph. So here I get the phone call saying, um, "We know you work really hard for an entire year to make sure that Morph was killed, and we respect that decision." But could you please find a way if you could get him back? <laughs> it seems like, you know, half the kids in America, he's their favorite character. So the fans' love of Morph, who we were trying to make sympathetic, so, so the people who miss him when he died, fans of Morph made a. We then rewrote it and rewrote it back in as Damaged Morph. And that was a change that we resisted because we wanted to be. We didn't want to cheat it and have it be a comic book desk, you know, where he's always killed, he's not really killed. And, or it's just, yeah. But we made that, you know, we, we said, okay, guys, we understand, you know, you've got a network to run. We'll find a way that we think is just as good, we hope, to bring him back. And since he died off screen, it was, it was believable. But it, we, we really didn't like it at the time. It was not pleasant. Oh, I, we were talking about voice actors a short while ago. I just got to uh, have Eric jump in here with a story about telling uh, Ron Rubin, who was who, the voice of Morph. Yeah, yeah, he's talented, talented guy. Yeah, and he's because we interviewed him along with well, most of the cast for the book, and he's saying, "Well, look, I'm, I'm looking at my, uh, uh, you know, I'm looking at my description of my character, and you know, I've got the they had the did the first the, the, the two part pilot all together." He's there with a cast of 10 of his friends recording this. They're having a great time, and he flips it over to about halfway through the story, and he reads, oh, and Morph dies. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like, what? What? This is like the hottest show in town, and all my friends getting 13 episodes, and I have to die at the beginning of episode two? No, 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 this can't be right. <laughs> Who do I talk to about this? So he had one of those, those actor reactions. Yeah, we just had to tell him no more. I mean, no, Rob, we just we created you to kill you. So that's just the way it has to be. But he did get to come back, ironically, in spite of the yeah. fact that he was not supposed to. So. Yeah. Right. I like, so, I like oh. that y'all did a lot of the heavy stuff because I, I think one of the, the episodes that still sticks out to me is the one where it's Mystique, it's Mystique and Nightcrawler and Rogue and yes. that whole story, especially when the ending, because we were also left to believe that, you know, Mystique was killed and, and you know, we know that she never dies, <laughs> but it was just the the way that story was played out, I was I was very, it, it, it struck me like this is a serious 
show. Like it was like this is serious because this was mother issues. This was understanding, you know, how myopic um, Mystique was, but also how she did care for them, and it was just very heavy. And I would, but yeah, I liked that. I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, just so I, I appreciate that y'all went there with these episodes and with these storylines because I think that was basically the core of what we wanted to see when it comes to any X-Men property. You know, we always sort of told ourselves we're, we're writing live action drama that happens to be half hour and happens to be animated, <laughs> you know, in terms of taking it seriously and trying to be honest with the characters. And to be honest, the, the books themselves, I mean, there was, there was a big variation over the years in, in the way they told the stories, but in a lot of the stories, a lot of the Claremont Burn stories especially, they were very serious and about very serious stuff. And so oftentimes we've been hired out here in Hollywood to, to do a show about a pre-existing property like the X-Men. And the first thing people want to do is completely change it and lose the spirit of it. And so you know, we were just staring at people's faces and saying, look, guys, you bought this. You know, you want to do the X-Men because you wanted to do X-Men, and we're reading it. I don't see this as a goofy little kid show. I, you know, I see these books as being a bunch of adults with serious family, with serious adult issues, uh, struggling to lead their lives. And if you bought this and you want us to portray it, you know, let us portray it. And that and that was persuasive. I mean, with the the lady that had to make the rules, she said, "Look, if this were Mickey, if this were Mighty Mouse, or if this were you know My Little Pony, whatever, you, I wouldn't be letting you kill people." But it's the X Men, it's the books, it's what this world is about. If you're going to have people fighting over, you know, almost destroying cities, you need to show it, and and you need to show the adults living adult issues. And if the little and every almost every show we work on out here, they say, Oh, the little kids aren't gonna get it. If you if you write it if you make it too sophisticated. They say, No, 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 young kids love to aspire. They love to figure out what their older brothers and sisters are loving so much. And I think X Men proved it true. We had a little a huge audience of little kids. They didn't get half of what was going on. But they they knew they knew something special was going on, and they kept watching. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where I learned some a lot of the the words and the vocabulary. Like when Beast was talking about Storm's nom Nagar, I was like, "What the heck is that? What is he even talking about?" So you know, my mom shoved the dictionary in my face and said, "Go look it up." So yeah, that, <laughs> she, we did that a lot with uh, a lot of the the dialogue and whatnot. But I would be remiss to not ask you guys about the Phoenix Saga. I think one of the best love stories that has been created in any medium. So how was that? How much of an undertaking was that getting it from from creation to actually on screen? Well, actually, on that one, that actually went pretty smoothly. Everybody stepped up out of their game on that one, I think. There were three or four things that went right for that one. One was we had had two big successful uh, runs of stories, and we actually flew out, or one time we did, flew a bunch of us out to New York to sit down with Marvel and say, okay, we're going to do a bunch more stories. The Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix are going to be part of it. You talk to us and you tell us what's important 
Because there's all sorts of stuff going on in the fan Phoenix books. There's four or five different stories going on. And so the, the fact that they were supportive of us and the, the artists really put their work into it. But when I sat down, I was able, on that one four, uh, five-parter, uh, I was able to do that with my with two friends I've been writing with for 15 years, Mark and Michael Eames. We did that one all together. And we were able to sit down and we thought, what we took from the books, which were was like had too much in them, it wasn't like there wasn't enough story there. What we did was was focus it on on Scott and Gene and try to pare away everything. If you look back in the books, there's lots of secondary stories going on. Pare away stuff that didn't have to do with the two of them and kind of focus the X-Men's interest in what was going on with Gene through Scott's eyes and make it just as in that way, as intimate story as we could. I mean, there's space things going everywhere, there's intergalactic fights, mm-hmm. but what we thought was the emotional core of it was, my God, this guy's losing his the woman he loves, and that's a real simple emotion to hang on, and it lasted, and it lasted for five episodes. It, it kept the whole big, huge, messy, spectacular show together, we thought. Yeah, when when Jean uh, takes herself into the sun and she's like, I love you, Scott. Um, part of me, uh, that part right there just always chokes me up and I always cry. It's, it's just something about that, that you know that he's going to the ends of the galaxy to try to get the woman that he loves and nothing's going to stop him. That that does something to me. No, um, let's just oh, go ahead. That we're, we're talking about again, it's cartoon. It's like it's it's talented people, but it's just it's it's line drawings on a piece of paper, and it's, and yet these and none of it. It's, it's not a human being standing there talking to you about this. It's mm-hmm. it's animation. It's some displaced voice. It's right. But the, yeah, the actors, the actors really got it on that. Oh yeah, and yet somehow able to convey that and to touch you in that way. I think that's pretty amazing. And, yeah, we wanted to say that again. The kids that were. By it. They maybe didn't necessarily, but at that age, understand romantic love, but they understood loving somebody, and so that was that was enough. So I think that that, it, that was there for everybody. Oh yeah, I remember. I couldn't stand the Phoenix Saga when I was younger because it was like rom- romance, love. Who? I just want to see fights. But now, as you're an adult, you're like, oh my gosh, this is a sad story. <laughs> so it's so different how you can have such a different mindset uh but you all have a, a book coming out could you tell us about this book oh, yeah. roll, please. and thank you for asking yeah uh, again a couple of times we've mentioned this the 25th anniversary of the debut of x-men the animated series coming up uh, this october 31st and eric and i kind of looked around and i started poking him a few uh, short while back saying no there's um other shows, for example, like Star Trek with Paramount or The Genius Batman with Warner Brothers, there's there's you know sort of a, a studio support in place for the celebration of these properties. And then for various reasons, uh, when Marvel went through a bankruptcy and various rights got sold off to various different companies, we realized there's no one out there taking a look at X Men the Animated Series. Remembering it because. Fox owns some rights. And Disney owns some rights. Some yeah. rights and, 
And so nobody's really out there talking about it. So she's okay. But, uh, we happen to have a garage that happens to have a space where we happen to have shoved everything. <laughs> <laughs> every script, every premise, every storyboard, every you know, uh, uh, memo between you know, people, between us and Marvel, whoever. And we just were a little pack crash that way. And so we've got all these files full of stuff. And we thought, oh, well, great. We, this could make a great book and a story of telling about making the show and luckily you know publishers got it they understood you know they knew the x-men would help this the title would help sell it and, you know we're not going off you know we've worked on i say a lot of other shows that we the ones we've run wouldn't necessarily be as popular ones to write a book about but we uh and then so we just started interviewing people and almost to a one the cast the crew the executives the artists they remember it as their favorite their, their favorite job ever and you know, we didn't know. I mean, I'd never spoken to the crew before. So I'm talking to these people in Toronto, or in the case of Storm Barbados, which is where <laughs> she's from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're talking about uh, how, how great experience it was, and the fan mail they get, and the phone calls, and and I know what a big thing it was in their lives. And uh, so it's been a wonder. It's the book's about a month away from coming out. Sometime. In October, uh, October, maybe the latest, the first of November, it'll be out on it'll be out on the shelves. It'll be at uh, bookstores. It'll be on Amazon. It'll be on Amazon as a Kindle. Um, and it's and it's called. This is a, Drum roll, please again. Yeah, we had to pick the title as opposed to just saying X Men animated series book. So we entitled it previously on X Men. The making of the animated series. So that's, <laughs> So that's the title. We just figured that would be, you know, that's what, what that's what everybody heard every, every day when they turn on the TV and they wait for the show. First thing they hear was previously on X Men. So there you go. There's the title, and and again, hoping the book comes out uh, in time for the holiday sales. Oh yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's gonna or we'll <laughs> she's the publisher. And then. But, <laughs> Then Eric and I are hoping to uh, take the show on the road, you know, go to as various comic cons and comic fests as we can, yeah. and and meet some may, fans. Yeah, we may be, if the book's available, we may be at uh, comic cons uh, at the end of October. Here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. And we will be at uh, a bookstore here in Burbank called The Perky Nerd on October 21st, so... Again, yeah, yeah. you've been not given, you've been not told that you're sure the book will be out by then, but Correct. we hope it will. They, they had a celebration set up beforehand, so we're we're going to be part of that. Uh, and then we just hope, you know, once uh, once a month or so to go to other cons or to, to to just find ways to go around and support the book and, and meet people that, that that love the show and, and talk to them about it. That'll be fun. You definitely have to come to Lexington's Comic Con uh, down here, and then uh, Universal Fan Con, which is happening next uh, April in Baltimore. Um, Make notes here, okay? Universal, and you got a Lexicon there. Uh, yep, yeah. Lexington yeah. Comic Con. That's in March here in Kentucky. Um, so I uh, read that the uh, this. Beyond Good and Evil, that little story arc was supposed to be the series finale. It was. Ah, you found us out. Yeah, <laughs> so what actually happened? Well, and, that, and that's one of the fun bits in the book, as you figure out, is 
is you find out, and part of that, the way it was written at first, uh, and when it was supposed to be the finale, that was supposed to be through that 65 episodes, which is what normally uh, shows would run back then, because you could run them for uh, four times a year, and that would be perfect amount. In any case, that was supposed to be the end of it, and Mark Evans and help again, same guy, we helped that had done both, helped lay out both Phoenix sagas. He helped us lay out this four part story. And what happened besides all the spectacle of the fighting and, and the intergalactic uh, drama going on was that by the end of that, we were going to have five of our X Men leave and four new ones come in to replace them. And that was something that we wrote, that we layered all the way through all four parts of the story. And it was going to be, uh, I think, Storm and Jubilee and Professor X and Scott and Gene were going to take off. Uh-huh. And they're going to end up with four new X-Men. Uh, we were going to be Bishop and Shard because they were coming from the future and they were stranded in our original story in this X-Men time. So the X-Men looked out and said, well, you want to join us? So at the end, by the end of the episode, it was one of these, this group's leaving, this group's coming, and we'll all wave goodbye and, and, and say how great a time we had. Well, just after we finished writing 160 pages, all four scripts are ready, we get a call saying, gee, you can't change the team because we just got an order for six more episodes. <laughs> the whole story, which is one reason it's a little bit muddy and complicated and hard to follow, we had to go through the whole story and pull out all the, pull out the stuff about storm leaving and, and, and these new people coming in and just all the stuff. Psylocke was going to join them. And Archangel was going to join them. All the stuff we'd set up with all these characters so that they'd make the swap. Now they're just kind of, okay, see you around. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was frustrating from a writer's standpoint because we thought we'd written a really tight story to make all that stuff happen. And now we, you know, but it's part of being a professional. You know, you're called to the last minute and say, Said, well, okay, we need this for the good of the show. We just got six more episodes. Okay, we'll, we'll hunker down and we'll, we'll fix it. But it's not, I don't think it's currently as good as it was when we wrote it the first time. But it did leave the room to come back and do 11 more. We ended up doing 11 more. And, and then wrapping up with graduation day. Yeah, because yeah, graduation day was really, we thought it was really satisfying when we didn't say goodbye. Yeah, speaking of graduation day, that episode. It's always tough to watch because I know it's the ending of the series and I know that Professor X, quote-unquote, dies. Uh, how was working on that episode and how was the mood when you knew it was the, the final episode of the series? It was, it was, I mean, it was a comp- combination of things. Uh, to, be honest, uh, to be honest, uh, the guy... Uh, I was usually pretty light-handed, you know, whatever. I, when, when I was working with writer on an individual episode, some people that are supervisors or showrunners will change everything and make it all just, just have, feel like they have to put their hands on everything. But if I get a really good script in from somebody and I think it's wonderful, I try to change nothing. But on that one, uh, I really felt, you know, I just spent five years with these characters, I felt I had to put a lot of myself into the goodbye in the last six minutes of the show. So a lot of that is is being saying goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, and giving each character 
their, you know, uh, their chance to have their moment. And I think that's just beautifully done. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a heart tucker. Yeah, it's a shame. It is. It is. I cry. I think I've cried every time since the episode, since I've seen the episode first in the 90s. So, Aww. yeah, when he's giving the speeches and I'm like, oh, well, well shit, he's not going to be here anymore. And then the uh, the final the final scene where everybody's standing uh, in front of the mansion uh, looking at the uh, laundry and him go away. I was like, that, iconic. And yeah. 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 We, we agree <laughs> <laughs> so what's um what's a, the lasting memory that you have of working on x-men it was a it was a great time in, in our family's life we were young parents at that point uh, two babies. and we were working out of the home office that's it, not exactly glamorous hollywood uh, it was Working from our dining room, Eric was working from our dining room table, and we had two clunky computers, one of them on a TV tray, <laughs> uh, would go in uh, every few days or every couple weeks for meetings elsewhere. But it, it, was, we, we, it wasn't as if we were getting to drive onto a studio lot daily and be waved past all the peasants. You know, that wasn't happening. Um, <laughs> But it was a gratifying time, too, in terms of the friends we got to work with, the friends I got to work with specifically as a writer on the show, working with other writers I really enjoy, and um, and, and meeting other talent there. And it, it was really satisfying. Now, the, 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 what, what happened after is that it did so well that we were immediately busy. I mean, we, I mean, we, we, didn't, get, we didn't get rich... Uh, off of, <laughs> of the salaries, but what we did benefit from was it did so well that a lot of people wanted to hire us as soon as we were done. So we didn't have a whole lot of time to, to, to kind of sit back and ponder right. what it was like. Um, to be honest, it's, if, I don't know if you noticed, the last season, the book's a little cheaper. And, yeah. it was, and it was, they were cutting back on budgets, but they were kind of had everybody on the business side kind of had one foot out the door before we done. So some of those last stories are still, I think are still pretty sharp, but it was, it was like, it was its time. It was like people had people, people going on to other stuff. A lot of people were leaving the show uh, for various crew people. And so it was, it was just, it was, it was time to say goodbye. Uh, and in that way, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult thing to, it wasn't like they were tearing us away from something that was vibrant. It was, it was feeling like it was the right time to go. But here it is now, you know, 25 years later, and it's been a wonderful experience to, to, take, to take the time now to kind of just look back and, and remember it now. And that's been very satisfying, too. And we made some of our best friends on that, you know. You meet people like, like you know, Lynn Lean, who, who created Wolverine and Storm out of thin air. Uh, you know, he... He was one of the few comic book writers that also wrote animation. And so, you know, I met him on the show. Mm -hmm. It's how odd that was, me calling up the guys, look, uh, you don't know me, but I'm, I'm doing an X-Men show, and you kind of recreated the X-Men and have these characters. Uh, how about writing for me? <laughs> so, so there were some fun, really fun things that happened during the show. Um, and, again, being allowed... You can write anything on your own because it's your own dime. But having people in in this business 
put up the money to do 76 episodes of something that allows us to write like this. That was just that was just a, a privilege, and that yeah. was that was something that doesn't get repeated necessarily. So. Well, I just want to say thank y'all for giving us so much, so much info and so much great stuff today. Oh, thank you. If I can put in a minor plug here, I think we all met each other through Twitter, if I recall correctly. Yes. And we we are. I try to be very busy on Twitter, and we are at X Men TAS, which is for X Men the animated series. And we also have a um, a website a blog xmentas.com, and that's where we've been. Po- Eric's been posting behind the scenes bits and pieces, and X and, and on Twitter, we just try to have fun with folks every day, so if they can find us either way there. That would be fabulous. Yeah, we we keep, we keep those up best we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from this is Nick. Thank you for working on that cartoon because I. I still have the videotapes of my mom recording them uh, on Saturdays or whenever they would come on. I remember when the X-Men movie came back out and they re-showed the cartoon again on Fox. So thank you all so much for coming on our show and talking about this cartoon and creating it because it means a lot to not only us two, but a lot of people. Oh. Thank you so much for that. It means so much for us to hear that because, it, you know, writers tend to be kind of quiet, you know, off in the little offices, and we don't really get to hear this very often. So, so thank you. Thank you very much. And, Victor, I think that about does uh, close our show for today. So uh, you can follow the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, the podcast is also on twitter at megachine pod you can follow me i am at porter pizzazz victor is at wonderman five um anything else before we get up out of here i'm 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 just i'm just thrilled i'm, just- <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm probably gonna go watch the cartoon again since it's on hulu but again, thank y'all. Thank y'all for coming on today. And I, I again, thank you for giving us some time to talk about the show that we love. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much. And kids, until next time. All right. Bye-bye, everybody.